and welcome to the beautiful boxing podcast on what has been an absolutely shocking night of football. If there are any Arsenal fans out there like myself, you basically saw what is the equivalent of that first day back after two weeks annual leave, where you just sit there on that Monday and you pretend that you're reading emails, but really you'd rather be anywhere else than sat in that fucking chair. And so it's been quite a quite a painful couple of hours, but I'm going to try and record because there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on. So bear with me. The mood will pick up as we get through the episode, I promise you. So I think it would be remiss of me not to talk about the, the noise surrounding Anthony Joshua versus Tyson Fury. So the fight's still a pipe dream. Whatever anyone tells you, Whatever press releases are issued, until we have a, a contract signed by both parties, until we have a venue, until we have everything sorted around the details, we don't have a fight. There are so many things that need to happen. Like The happy path required for this fight to happen is absolutely insane. It requires Fury to deal with the, the, the Deontay Wilder situation. It requires Fury to deal with the Dillian White situation, which is getting worse by the minute. And it also requires Anthony Joshua to deal with his Kubrat Pulev situation and his Alexander Usyk situation. So there are four guys there that can present bumps in the road for this fight happening. So I don't, I, it's, it's hard to understand why you would want to talk about this, apart from to deflect from Anthony Joshua's statement, which I've discussed in a previous podcast. So I don't want to rehash an old discussion. But it was, it was shameless media opportunism and it's the kind of thing that as boxing fans we should be demanding more and we don't. So in a lot of ways, boxing fans get what they deserve because we should be aspiring to be better. But the real noise about it has come from the negotiations. And I'm, I'm neither pro-Kinahan or anti-Kinahan. What I am is a boxing fan. And whoever can make the best fights makes the best fights. But that situation has become problematic. And all I want to say is, to all the guys who, who are now prepared to shoot me down for my views, who on earth is going to police who comes in and out of boxing? Would you trust the Hearns to do it? I wouldn't. Not with the stories that are out there about how the, how the supposed Sky exclusivity fell apart. Frank? Well... Frank's a guy that grew up in Islington in the 60s and 70s. So you imagine a lot of his friends growing up are tasty characters anyway. So Frank's not really a guy that's bothered about who he does business with. Bob Arum? <laughs> let's, just, let's just touch on that really, really quickly. If you go back to 2004, and a lot of you guys are, are not those, you're not boxing fans that were into the the nitty-gritty in 2004. This predates a lot of social media, predates a lot of things. But in 2004, the FBI basically raided top rank and they were investigating allegations of fight-fixing. Bear in mind that they were alleging that Shane Mosley versus Oscar De La Hoya was fixed. Let that sink in. The two marquee names at the peak of their powers, because those guys are roughly the same age. So they're in their peak years and they're fighting. This is like someone saying the Champions League has been rigged. And so they worked backwards. And what they started to look at was 
allegations that less of fights had been rigged. People were taking falls. I think there was a guy called Andre Smiley that made similar allegations, and he was a journeyman boxer. Zero wins, 26 losses. When I see that kind of record, I believe you could have won. Because if you fought 26 times and not won, there's a certain point where you just quit or you know you're good enough to beat the other guy. So the question is, why hasn't he beaten any of the other guys? So I can't remember. I think it was Sean Gibbons and Bruce Trampler. Trampler, always forget the names, but I'm just going back through the archives. These guys were all implicated in it. So this was from like 1999 to 2004. And there'd been allegations about Bob dating way back into the 70s. So Bob's not going to police it because Bob's had the, he's had the Don King treatment where the, the feds come in and have a look. Don King, prime example, man. Muhammad Ali v. Larry Holmes. The feds had to investigate that. Duran versus Leonard, one and two. The feds had to investigate because they couldn't understand how what were ostensibly loss-making businesses were always able to generate the cash required to stage these events and pay the fighters. Even then, you were paying Duran and Leonard five, five million each, I'm guessing, something like that. They're still insane purses in 2020, never mind 40 years ago. So now let that sink in. And I say this just to illustrate the point that there's never been a point where you could look at the people in boxing and go, they're fine, upstanding characters. So I'm asking you, who's going to police the circus? The answer is absolutely nobody. So we make noise now because of who's involved, but there have been worse characters involved. Allegations that the Gambino family were involved, who have far more bodies on their record. And so you have to have that sense of perspective that <laughs> there comes a certain point where something generates too much money for people not to be involved. So where the money, where the cash flow is high and the level of regulation is low, you're always going to find interesting characters inserting themselves in because it's easy to do. And I say to people, you think campaign for greater governance. But, you know, just expect that this is what we're going to see now for the big fights because this is the only way we can break the deadlock between the promoters is to get people that they respect slash fear to have these conversations. And as fans, if you want the big fights, this is the price you're going to have to pay. But let's switching gears for a second. I think we're about, what are we now? Two weeks into the boxing is back cycle. And so now, having seen a couple of games of football, seen a couple of nights of boxing, you can compare the two. And I don't know how I feel. I definitely don't feel as excited watching football without a crowd. I don't. But boxing, I'm less worried about because I think... And I saw this in Arsenal. Arsenal was so lethargic that you wonder if they were affected by the silence. Although there are people going, you know, Arsenal have never been the most vocal of supporters. Yeah, funny. Yeah. But when you look at boxing, I don't mind the lack of a crowd so much in boxing because I don't think you can be half-hearted in boxing. I just don't think you can be. Like once the adrenaline kicks in, and that fear kicks in, you mean you're giving it your best. It may be good enough, it may not be, but you are. So that makes for a good spectacle. I think the fact that every three minutes you get a break, I think is fantastic. I'll go back to the racism discussion that was had between Andre Ward and Timothy Bradley, and I think that has to be some of the best TV I've seen because 
it captured a real human moment. And boxing, this is rare. It's rare that fighters give a lot away. And Timothy Bradley gave a lot away. And Andre Ward, in his own way, gave a lot away. And I thought that was really good TV. And from an ESPN perspective, if that's the level of programming we're going to have to expect in this period, may that continue. I don't think the guys at Sky could pull that off. For years, Sky's been inauthentic. You know, we've been sold the fairy tale. And so their commentators can't now suddenly come and start talking about experiences of racism and so forth because they don't come across as authentic. And it's a shame because that's probably our best broadcaster. And I don't think BT could do the same either because we don't have the credible characters. They all strike me as just being media whores who just want to be out for a bit of a jolly to the boxing. So I don't know what sort of TV programming we're going to get from these guys. It feels like it's going to be a massive letdown compared to the Americans. But we'll find out in due, in due course, we'll find out. One of the things I have found really, really interesting is there seem to be some themes emerging in this initial run of fights. And I think if you're a boxer right now, you want to be very careful. Body punches are getting more purchase and are getting more reward for their punches now. And I find this, inf this has been fascinating. The guys with the consistent body attack are doing far better. And the reason I suspect is it takes you weeks, months, if not years, to build up the ability to absorb a body shot. I suspect you can lose it pretty quickly. And yes, you get muscle memory and you'll get it back to a certain level. But to be where you were before, you're a long way away from that. So I think that's really interesting, is that the body punches are being rewarded. And actually, this is making fights a lot closer than they were meant to be on paper. And then secondly, the guys who naturally have a high work rate seem to have hit the ground running quicker. So if you're a high work rate guy with a good body attack, this is your time to be springing upsets. This is your time for signing up to fights. I would be all over that right now. So it's going to be interesting for your matchmaker. Because if I'm managing a fight, I'm telling him, no body punches, no high work rate guys. Not because I'm scared, but that first fight back is not the time for a gut check. You just want to ease your way back in. You want to get used to the new reality. No crowd noise. No walking into the arena, having your back slapped and all these sorts of things that you're used to. Yes, you're the center of attention, but you're the center of attention to an audience that's not there. And you have to get used to all of this psychologically. A lot of fighters are going to overlook this. But if you're not preparing yourself for the silence, if you're not preparing yourself for the emptiness, it's going to affect you on fight night. So boxers should be preparing for that now psychologically. How is that going to feel? What's it going to be like when you're in an arena and you can't be close to the other fighters and you've got to be two meters apart? As a trainer, you've got to get used to that as well. What does that mean for your logistics? All of these things become important because successful fighters are well-oiled machines. The process is nailed down. There's no questioning. There's no doubt. And so if you haven't made these adjustments, I think that first fight back will be tricky. The second one should be a lot better, but that first one's going to be tricky. And that's where you're going to see most of your upsets in the UK. So I think it will be ridiculous if you're managing a fighter to accept a 50-50 fight as a first fight. I think you'd be foolish. I think it'd be crazy. I think you'd do more damage to your fighter's career by doing so. And I say that knowing as a boxing fan, I want to see that. But I also understand it from the other side. I may not necessarily want to see that. 
And so this is going to be fascinating going forward, right? Will there be the upsets that we expect? Are we really going to see, you know, person A defeat person B against the odds? Are the bookies going to take a pasting? I don't know. I really don't know. But I, to all the young guys I know who are getting ready to fight this summer, do not just sign up to a fight because a year ago you could have beaten him. Because you don't know what this guy's done. It's like that first day of the Premier League season. You don't know what you're signing up to until you see it, and then you've got to adapt to it. So the easier your, your route back into boxing, I think the better in the long term. But I can tell you this, the long term sucks if you're a match from USA, right? <laughs> so this travel ban essentially means that the fighters on the Matchroom US roster cannot box. The problem you have when you're Eddie Hearn and you make everything about you is essentially when you're not there, nothing really happens. So what, from what I can gather, they don't have the resources they need over there to make the fights happen. You can negotiate fights, but there's no one there to build it up. There isn't a central focus. So Danny Jacobs sat on his hands. Uh, Jesse Vargas sat on his hands. Gabe Rosado sat on his hands. Emma Williams sat on his hands. Otha Jones III sat on his hands. And they're all waiting for dates, but there's nothing you can do. Devin Haney sat on his hands. And so you're, you're, you're looking at that going, the zone is saying, we want to get moving as quickly as possible. Hearn's like, I can't, I can't fly over there. And if I fly over there, I definitely can't be back because I've got to lock myself away for two weeks, and that's not how I work. Certain times you wish you, you operated like Al Heyman. So... Danny Jacobs has got to be, what, 32, 33? Vargas has got to be heading towards that age as well. These are guys that should be fighting now and cashing in, making money. Same with Gabe Rosado. It's not happening. The, the Hearn dream in the U.S. Is, is stuttering. And if you now look at the stables, so the U.K. stables washed. We've already said this over a number of years. Hearn hasn't really invested in it. You know, we're still waiting for the Olympians to break through. Now, there are rumours that Okoli will fight Glovacki. Is it Glovacki or Glovacki? I don't know. For a world title at some point soon. These are just rumours I've been hearing. And if that's true, fair enough, he's in the World Boxing Super Series. But I think to win a world title, you want to put him in with someone like Bradis and say, right, you beat someone like Bradis, you're a legit champion. You don't even have to bother unifying. You can shoot straight up to heavyweight if you want to. Just my opinion as a fan. It'll be a tough fight for him because Bradis is really about that smoke. 100% about that smoke. But Lawrence is a big guy and he's a strong guy and he can go. So it'll be interesting. And when you've got Shane in your corner, no, no, it's a step towards victory. I just wanted to... Just to, to build on that. Of all, how the 2016 intake went so wrong is beyond me, number one. Number two, how Hearn could miss out on signing Yoka, also beyond me. Three, how Yoka has managed to not move a step forward is equally beyond me, along with where the hell Hergovic is. The only guy that classes that intake who seems to have moved forward at any speed is Daniel Dubois, followed by Joe Joyce. So credit to the Brits for taking the risks. But... Back to the point. So 
Hearns basically butchered the stable because his real dream was to get AJ, get your Golovkins, get whoever, right? He just wanted to deal with the top guys. And he said this in IFL interview after IFL interview. He only cares about making memorable nights. So he doesn't care about your Anthony Fowlers. He doesn't care about your Scott Fitzgeralds. They're just cannon fodder to him. You know, they're the guys you send over the top at the Somme because you don't care. They're expendable. But the problem is he now has to work with his expendables and he has to find competitive fights for his expendables, which is basically going to look like matchroom guys versus small hall guys who they'll try and convince you are world beaters. But some of them we've seen and they're pretty toilet, if we're being honest. So now, from a zone perspective, Oscar De La Hoya has the reverse problem. Oscar has a stable of stars, but he can't seem to get it right for them. I think Ryan Garcia has had another Twitter spat with Oscar De La Hoya. You almost wonder whether these guys do it deliberately, just to keep it relevant. But you also don't know because Oscar De La Hoya is literally a human bumper car. Like, you don't know what direction he's going to go and you don't know what he's going to do next, but you know there's a crash imminent when it comes to Oscar De La Hoya. So the Ryan Garcia thing, he wanted more money. Oscar's gone to the network and said, no, I want less money. I don't understand any of this. But then boxing is that sort of sport where money disappears a lot. And maybe Ryan Garcia is cottoning on to that money's disappearing. Because this skimming thing's not new in boxing, where you say to the network, I need half a million to organise a show. But in real terms, the show will probably cost you 140 grand. Where does the rest of the money go? You pocket it. Now, I'm being extreme with the numbers, but this happens a lot. I'm not saying anyone's doing it. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised if something similar is not happening. Because the mission has always been to separate the zone from its money as quickly as possible. And then everyone gets back to business as usual. This is really where this is headed. The zone throws, we just say a billion, right? Let's just say they have got a billion. The zone throws a billion into boxing. Oscar takes 300 grand. Bob takes about 200 grand. Al takes 100 grand. 100 million, sorry. Using grand. Well, they'll take hundreds of millions, right? Oscar takes. Say Oscar takes 400. Bob takes 200. Al takes one. Eddie takes 150. They leave 150 on the table for DAZN to say we won. I suspect that's what boxing will do. DAZN will then say we don't want to work in boxing anymore. Everyone goes back to HBO, Showtime, ESPN. You know, happy as Larry. That's ultimately where this will end up. By the time the zones step out of this, and they will step out eventually because they will run out of money, we'll go back to the traditional networks. That's just how this game works. As they say, a fool and their money are soon parted. And so, in all of this, just look at what Oscar's doing. He outwardly looks like he's screwing up his stable, but no one's left. Canelo's still there, but he's on good money. Ryan Garcia's there because DAZN could make him a star. But he hasn't got a dance partner. They talked about the Linares fight. Would have been a good fight. If you're ready for a Linares type character. Because Linares is skilled and Linares is experienced. And Ryan Garcia, while impressive, still hasn't shown us that guile that says, I can nullify an opponent. So if you're the zone, what do you do with your prize assets 
you probably put Canelo out September 12th. That's the date they're talking about. But why not put Ryan Garcia in with Devin Haney? They're about the same age. I don't think a loss harms either man at the moment. And I think it's a good chance to see who's who and what's what. So I think, I think they've split wins and losses between themselves and the amateurs with Ryan Garcia winning the early exchanges where I guess physical maturity wasn't that big a deal and it was more a speed skill thing. And Devin Haney winning the latter three for sure when I guess his increased physicality and maybe boxing maturity became more of a factor. Now, would they make that fight? You can find all kinds of reasons not to make it because obviously they're talking Devin Haney versus Luke Campbell, but we have no idea when these fights are going to happen. Like, we're geographically isolated as boxing markets for now. And that's why we can put to bed any talk of Dillian White fighting Povetkin because, you know, if you have to observe any form of quarantine, and I don't know if Dillian's back in the UK, but if he is, then he's made it just in time. But I suspect he'll have to self-isolate for a while as well. And then when Povetkin does come, he'll have to self-isolate for two weeks. It's not advantageous. I don't think anyone would be ready to, to have a fight of that magnitude in August, if I'm being brutally honest. And then just to touch on Dillian White, you have to, <laughs> you have to feel sorry for Dillian. And I'm going to explain why I feel sorry for Dillian. He was always used as Eddie Hearn, blocker. So let's, let's go back. Remember when they signed Luis Ortiz and they had Luis Ortiz fight Dave Allen? Yes, Dave Allen of all people. Luis Ortiz fought Dave Allen. <laughs> Luis Ortiz fought Dave Allen. If you can name me a more disrespectful fight, please do. You fight Dave Allen and Malik Scott. And Eddie Hearn's telling you he's the biggest promoter in world boxing. You've got a real monster like Luis Ortiz. And when you gave him a dance partner like Deontay Wilder, you found out how good Ortiz was. But Ortiz was signed merely as a blocker. You're not going to fight AJ, but we're going to put you in position so you can eliminate potential threats. Ortiz saw through this pretty quickly and decamped back to the United States where he had a more fruitful career. Dillian hasn't seen this yet, or maybe he has and he's chosen to play along with it. Dillian should never have been in the WBC lane anyway because Hearn's not powerful in the WBC. Could have easily put him in the IBF, could have easily put him in the WBA. Easily. And they chose not to. And the reason they chose not to is the better Dillian gets, the less Joshua wants that fight. And yeah, they want it for, for bragging rights and you know who's really who. Fair enough, I get the narrative behind it. That's a hard night's work for AJ. It wasn't before because Dillian was rusty. Let's not forget they pressured Dillian into that fight. And I remember at the time people were saying it's too soon. But you know what Hearn's like, take it or leave it. This opportunity won't come again, so you have to take it. And that's partly why Dillian didn't take the fight last year in New York. Because he remembered that feeling of being press-ganged into a fight he didn't believe he was ready for. And so he said, I want to do it on my terms where I feel strong and I feel ready and it's part of my natural progression. I understand all that. And that's Dillian's strength. He's financially stable enough now that he can do that. 
And he's got people around him in Mark Tibbs and Eamon and so forth who help him see sense. Dean White too. These guys all help him see sense. It's a sensible team he's got around him. And I hope now they say, and the messages are being made clear. You've been used as a blocker. You were there to disrupt Wilder, if you remember. <clears throat> That's what he was there for. Usyk was there in case Fury went the WBO route. We've got a blocker here. Hearn had never calculated that Fury would fight Wilder and beat him. And that's made that WBC route interesting because now he says I can make money of Fury versus White. Tyson doesn't want to fight White, not because he's scared of him. He just doesn't want to give Hearn that money. That's the challenge. You don't want to give Hearn that money. So, so Dillian's in this awkward position whereby he's not really adding value at this point in terms of matchroom because he's no longer blocking Wilder. And Wilder now has all the options because now he's ranked in all the other gov governing bodies. Who the hell wants to fight Wilder on the way up? No one. If Wilder bides his time in the IBF, eventually he comes for that belt. You don't want Wilder on your case because you know you're going to be in for a real fight because not everyone is six foot nine and super skilled like Tyson Fury. So actually, <laughs> the worst thing that could have happened for Hearn's plan was Wilder to lose because now Wilder can pick his route to get to Joshua. Because really, it's, if I'm Deontay, I'm like, I want to get to Joshua. The Fury thing, even if I lose, I'm still going to be highly ranked. If I win, fantastic, I get to Joshua. If I lose, what's my most effective route of getting to Joshua? It's the IBF. Because that's when the mandatory will come around quicker. So mandatory gets called now. There'll be another one in a year's time. Wilder won't take step aside money. He'll want that fight. So that's going to be fascinating. Because if nothing else, he'll get another crack at Fury. And that, so Dillian's role as a blocker has gone now. It's like American football. Deontay Wilder's escaped coverage. And now he's just running around the pitch, waiting for that ball to land. And he's picking his spot. So now Hearn's like, I don't really need Dillian. I can make a Fury-Joshua fight now if I want to. It's bigger that it's a Fury versus AJ fight than it's a White versus AJ fight. That's just cold, hard numbers. And so Dillian's now found himself in this position where he wants to be a world champion, but Hearn's not really invested in that anymore because he already knows the fight he wants to make. And now Dillian's a disruption. And that's really unfair on Dillian because Dillian played his position perfectly. He was in the media. He made noise. He fought for everything. And now start to see Hearn backtrack. And we'll start to hear more talk of Pulev. And we'll start to hear more talk of Usyk. Don't be surprised if Hearn says, I don't see why Dillian doesn't fight the winner of Chisora Usyk. Do not be surprised. And then the winner gets AJ. Don't be surprised if that's the story next. Because they don't really have a role for, for Dillian now that Wilder's a, a loose cannon and can go down any governing body route that he chooses. And I feel for Dillian. They've done him so dirty. I wish he had gone when he had the chance to. When he had the chance to sign with Al, I wish he had taken it. But now Al hasn't got the belts. But Al could have given him Deontay and Andy Ruiz and they would have been really good paydays. And he would have easily got the Joshua fight because the clamor for that in this country would have been incredible. Now, like I said, the reason I feel for Dillian, if nothing else, he's taken risks. If you consider his ability and level of experience, I don't think he's had a really safe fight except for the Lucas Brown fight. But that was a safe fight because Brown had been iced and sparring before. 
and I really have to feel for Dillian. I, this, is, this is that time where boxing just doesn't do you any favours. And so I just hope, from, from my perspective, they can find a fight for Dillian. It might be the Chisora fight, number three, just as a, a money spinner. One to entertain the fans, spin a bit of money for these guys heading to year end. And then when normality resumes, everyone goes about their business again. So I want to come back to, to the Andy Ruiz thing. Because I was on a phone call with Isaac Chamberlain today. We're just talking about trainers in general. No names in particular, but a couple of themes we were talking about. We're talking about the ebb and flow of being a trainer. And what I mean by that is... I'm going to use an example, actually. Let's take Shane McGuigan. There was a time when Shane McGuigan had David Hay, George Groves, Josh Taylor, Carl Frampton as his lead-up. Like, that was his lead-off stable. Chris Billum-Smith would join. Uh, Conrad Cummings was there. Fra have we mentioned Frampton? I think we have. And so, Shane had one of the strongest stables in British boxing. And we're not even three years from that peak, and he's having to rebuild now. And what I, I say that to illustrate a point that boxing is cyclical. One minute you're up, next minute you're down. Caldwell, one minute he's up, buzzing Jim, he's got everyone, he's got Bellew and this person, that person, Gavin McDonald. And then you're here now, you're, you're in the trough, trying to build your guys up again. And this happens, you know, and I hope he does it with, with whoever, I don't know if he's got Amy Timlin. I hope he's got Amy Timlin and I hope she does really well. She seems to be a fantastic young lady. And I'd like to see her get stuck into people immediately, if not sooner. Now, bringing all that around, the second theme I wanted to talk about was what it takes to be a trainer. And the reason I say this is there's a lot of bullshit out there. There are a lot of guys on Instagram and social media who walk around with the stupid lanyards and look, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm a level two trainer. I'm available for PT work, one-to-ones and everything else if you'd like that. Yes, yes, yes. You get all these people come into the sport and they think it's just about holding, holding pads and wearing a body bag and looking good on Instagram. And you get your 50 quid an hour from some banker or some failed CEO. It really isn't. I'll be honest with you. I could train Winnie King in a year and she'd be better than most of the trainers I know. Because the stuff you see trainers do isn't really that hard. It's just a routine. It's repetitive. It's grinding. It's incredibly hard on the body. How many trainers do you know that have real authority in this sport? How many trainers are there where their fighters do not cut corners? Not out of fear, but out of sheer respect and knowing that whatever blueprint this coach has laid out is what's going to get me the win. How many trainers do you know with that real authority? Because a lot don't have it. And I'll give you an example. Manny Robles. Manny Robles didn't have the character, didn't have that strength of character to grab Andy Ruiz by his overweight nostrils and drag him into the gym. That was his meal ticket. Had, had Andy Ruiz completed the job in Saudi, Manny Robles would have had everyone knocking at his door. And he didn't see the big picture. He was so worried about 
losing Ruiz and losing that payday that he sold his principles. And a lot of trainers do this in boxing. Do, I've heard the Gales done it. I know other boxers that have done it where they've just basically lost respect for the trainer because the trainer's not giving them anything they don't already know. They're not pushing them anymore. They've become fans and they've become fearful of losing that income. And it's natural to become defensive of something you've worked so hard to earn. But this is why I love guys like the Reynosos. The Reynosos say, you do it our way or you go. And I guess once you've got Canelo, you don't need anybody else. And you've had Canelo from a kid, so where's he going to go? Nowhere. And I think it will be interesting to see how Andy Ruiz adapts. He's doing these videos of himself running around and training, but he's never sweating, and that worries me. When I see a fighter putting training videos up and they haven't sweated, it's a sign that it's just done for show. But let's see what Ruiz does with the Reynosos, because if he can't make it happen this time, we don't want to know about him. You know, my, my instincts with Andy Ruiz were always, once he made his $10, $12 million, he was done with boxing. He'd achieved everything he wanted to. And the hunger just seems to have dissipated. But we'll find out in 2021 for sure. But I bring this back just to say, respect the good trainers. And you'll know the good trainers because their fighters never make excuses. Their fighters are always on weight, always in shape, always come to fight from a clear plan. You know, for all of Gallagher's faults, there you go. There's a guy whose fighters don't seem to cut corners on him. Caldwell, I thought the price thing was a bit confusing, and I think that's the only black mark against him, but generally, his guys show up to fight, so respect to him as well. And there, there are a few guys like that, but most of these, these chances, these pretenders, are ruining boxers by enabling silly behavior, you know, re regressive behavior. Sometimes you've got to stand up to a boxer and go, there are minimum standards you need to stick to, and if you can't do that, get out, because I promise to God, if they can't do it with you, they can't do it elsewhere. Look at boxing training like dating. If a woman tells you, I'll never send you a naked picture, I'll never send you pictures of my tits, you know, doesn't text you, doesn't message you, what she's basically saying is, I don't rate you. But there's a guy out there she rates, and she will fill his phone up with whatever he asks for in triplicate even. Because that's the guy that brings that out of her. Same with trainers. When you find a trainer you respect, you get up and you do your runs in the morning. You spar like your life depends on it. You, you do the repetitive, boring stuff because you believe in the trainer like he believes in you. And when that goes, a box will go elsewhere to find it. But you must always be careful. I always say to people, no one has ever left me once I've trained them and gone on to be better. No one. I stand by that. And you have to have that belief. That's strength of character. I just don't, I haven't seen it. If someone else has seen it, cool. But when people leave me, they don't get better. And if they did get better, then I failed. And I shouldn't even be doing it. I shouldn't even be recording this. But I don't feel they do. And that's the mindset a trainer should have. I've got friends in the game. If someone says, Terry, put your fighter up against Eddie Lamb's fighter, do you think you'll win? Yes. Adam Martin, do you think you'll win? Yes. Shane McGuigan, do you think you'll win? Yes. I may not win any of those. 
you know, because they're all damn good trainers. But if I went into that situation thinking Adam Martin's a better trainer than me, Shane's a better trainer than me, you know, they'll probably win. I shouldn't be in the game. Your fighter picks up on that. That will to win. Once you lose that will to win, once you're training someone to just compete and participate, that relationship's always on the skids. And when next time you see fighters and trainers falling out, just trace it back. You will see the moment where all authority is lost. You knew with Manny Robles when he was just, he wasn't certain when people asked him questions about Andrew Ruiz. He wasn't certain. Compared to McCracken, who was certain. And then you go, right now I know whose corner I'd rather be working with. And that's a real shame for Manny Robles because he had a chance to be one of the, the elite, the chance to be another Freddie Roach, and he blew it. Because when the pressure came on, it seems he couldn't be himself. He got scared of losing the money, and he became somebody else. And I suspect Ruiz picked up on that and exploited it. And that's a real shame. And it's not to denigrate the life of a trainer, but you have to remember, they're on the shakiest employment terms of any job I've ever heard of. <laughs> Let's go back to when Golovkin said to Abel Sanchez, how about I give you 2% instead of 10? What? Do you know how insulting that is for a trainer? Because I know so many trainers who, for the first 10 to 15 fights of their charges career, don't even take a cut. They go, no, 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 no. you keep the 10%, invest in yourself, go look after your kids, this, that, and the third. And then when the big nights come, you're going to suddenly say, well, I don't want to pay the 10%. It's insane. But this is what happens when you surround yourself with the wrong people. And it's a crying shame because that's how most situations fall out. You suddenly want to start paying someone less money. But it's the same training camp. The trainer's hands are still getting fried. That body bag still hurts. He's still having to get up to come and monitor your runs and watch your track performances and watch you spar. And now you don't want to pay the 10%? It's why it's hard to feel sorry for boxers because boxers only think about themselves. That's why I don't feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for trainers. I think all trainers should be given a contract. You have a two-year contract, and that 10% should be stipulated. And in fact, that should come out of your purse before the fighter even gets it. And I'd even go so far as to say, I'd say, if I'm being brutally honest, manager gets 15%, trainer gets 15%. Or I'd turn it 2010 the other way. And I think that's where the future needs to be because... A lot of trainers are struggling, man. How are you working as a tiler and then having to take someone on the pads and get battered about? You just, you just fall to bits eventually. Or for someone who's just going to leave you for the next shiny thing they see. No. And that's why boxing's cruel. It leaves a trail of destruction like that. And so I know it's a bit of a somber note to close on, but it's worth, it's worth thinking about when you watch some of these scenarios because if you notice... Dave Allen's just moved to Manchester, so I don't know how many trainers he's had. And every time someone has the hope that they could help Dave Allen fix, in the meantime, he drains them of their knowledge and moves elsewhere. No compensation given. Only, only, only situation I know where intellectual property can be freely used and absorbed and the creator doesn't get rewarded. It's absolutely shocking. But look, <laughs> it's not for me to complain, and I'll say, take care, 
and listen, have a great re the rest of the day, whether you're walking, you're jogging, you're shadow boxing, you're training, you're watching TV, whatever it is you're doing, have a great day. Remember, if you're on iTunes, leave a review. Try and share if you can. Share the Spotify links, the SoundCloud links, the iTunes links as well. Guys, take care. Thank you very much.